investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 56 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is Friday, February 28th, a pretty wild week. Wanted to touch on a few things. Focused on the fear gripping investors as coronavirus caused a global stock market rout. What's an investor to do? We got your bear market playbook for you. U.S. Treasury yields hit new all-time lows as investors panic buy safe haven securities. Should you be buying bonds here? Intuit acquires fintech company Credit Karma for $7.1 billion. What's the strategic rationale behind this deal? And finally, uh, Berkshire Hathaway released Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders. What's Warren thinking these days? Stock markets suffered their worst week since 2008-2009 global financial crisis as the S&P 500 plunged nearly 15% on coronavirus fears. Now, the market's route began really on Monday after news that the virus was spreading outside of China pretty rapidly, and then... Uh, Investors started to fear that this coronavirus pandemic was evolving from a Chinese crisis to a global and potentially out of control problem. And that's what really got investors on edge here is just the whole uncertainty of it all and the virus's effect on the global economy. The equity index fell into correction territory at record speed, taking just six trading sessions to fall more than 10%, which is the threshold for a correction, uh, from an all-time high. This was the fastest decline on record, as I said, uh, in in the history of the S&P 500 fastest to go from an all-time high to down double digits. Now, this market route wiped off $5 trillion from global equity values, so all investors, uh, all equity investors certainly being punished this week. We saw it in shares of manufacturers, banks, utilities. They've all dropped double digits. Of the 500 companies within the S&P 500, 493 have declined. The seven that rose in value were Newmont, CME Group, E-Trade, which is subject to uh, M&A deal, Clorox, CBOE, Gilead, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Now, uh, conversely, the list of the worst performers were dominated by companies that are basically hurt the most from this whole uh, coronavirus, the disease being called COVID-19. These companies include cruise lines, airlines, oil stocks, etc. I think a really interesting aspect to discuss here with respect to this tremendous volatility, and it really is substantial because the VIX, which is the volatility index, hit nearly 50, which I don't believe we've seen perhaps since 2008, 2009. But uh, for example, a normal VIX is roughly 15 and anything in excess of 30 is a pretty panicky situation. So to see it as high as 50 
that certainly should uh, ring alarm bells and is definitely proof that there's a lot of panic and fear in the market. I remember back in 2008, I believe the highest it got was 80. So this isn't unprecedented in terms of the VIX hitting nearly 50, but certainly it is very, very extreme. Now the trading volumes on SPY, which is one of the biggest uh, ETFs, if not the largest uh, ETF out there, it's the S&P 500 ETF Trust, these volumes jumped 300% on average. So you had just a ton of back and forth trading throughout the week as markets just continued to go down and down uh, pretty much every day. I believe two or three of the days this week, we saw the largest Dow point drops uh, on record. Now those were between uh, around the four to 5% range, which obviously isn't even near the top 20 in terms of percentage drops, but in terms of points, you know, above a thousand Dow points, that'll get you into the top 10, certainly. Oil prices, I mean, uh, they're certainly a victim of this as well. They plunged to multi-year lows with Brent crude on course for its worst week since the global financial crisis. And the other interesting aspect is uh, high-flying tech stocks. Now, those really powered the recent rally to new all-time highs in 2019 and earlier in 2020. Investors have really bet that those market darlings would continue to rise. However, this week, those were some of the worst performers being, uh, you know, Apple, Microsoft, stocks such as that. Um, outside of the market action, I wanted to touch on what exactly is the market up against here in terms of the coronavirus. Well, globally, about 83,000 people have been infected with this disease and nearly 3,000 have died. I should note that the people who have died are largely elderly. Uh, the largest mortality rate were those above 85 years old. So basically, if you're young and healthy, you're most likely to just, um, you know, get over it naturally. And how this is spreading, new cases are really slowing down in China, but the market really is concerned because they started accelerating in countries such as Iran and Italy. For example, it spread throughout a megachurch in South Korea. Then there were hundreds of sick people on a cruise ship docked in Japan. So there are these hot spots throughout the world and people are super concerned that's, that it's effectively going to spread globally. Some specific numbers on China, and this is really where the heart of it, this is where the virus outbreak started and where the vast majority, more than 90% of the infected are. Now this week, uh, or on Friday, China reported 327 new cases. Now this is the lowest since January 23rd. So I just wanted to get attention to the fact that in uh, the core of this outbreak, new cases are really decelerating, which is certainly beneficial to investors. But even if the epidemic in China peaked a few weeks ago and new cases are on the decline, it appears that investors don't take that to heart and they're really just freaking out in terms of what's happening outside of China. Yeah, and it, it does make sense to for investors to be a little bit critical of the numbers coming out of China. Um, we've been a little bit critical of some of the GDP numbers uh, that, that come out, as well as in North America, really, there's only a handful of, you know, cities that are really actually testing for the virus. So it is a little bit difficult to find how, out how many cases you have if you're not testing it for it. Uh, but moving back to market specific 
specifics. Um, what it, I, and I'll start out with some negative news and then move into some more positive news. But what's interesting about this sell-off really is in its breadth is uh, Josh Josh Brown, who pointed out in his blog, uh, the reform broker, uh, as of Wednesday's close, 98% of the S&P had fallen below its 10-day moving averages. So that implies that the trend factor had broken down substantially over the over the week um, but also one area that investors have looked at to kind of contain downside risks was in low volatility stocks uh, but those were actually down in line almost well, actually a little bit more than the market uh, so using using a low vol ETF as a proxy for those returns they were actually down uh, in the in the 12 percent to 13 percent range as opposed to the S&P uh, but then moving to a little bit of good news is that the S&P still is up over the last 12 months it's uh it's up six percent and then the tsx is up 3.6 percent over the last 12 months as well um company specific bright spots would be i guess zoom uh the video conferencing company that i ipo'd in 2019 we covered that on this podcast uh are competitors to skype and it was up actually over this week 3.1 percent really just on sentiment of more meetings moving to uh to video conferencing as opposed to uh, in-person meetings. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous in terms of these names being pushed around by short-term traders because you look at the market performance specifically of the stocks outperforming. You have Clorox, you have Zoom, uh, something like uh, Netflix, and they they refer to these uh, companies as the stay-at-home basket because some traders are expecting that if the virus was to spread and then you know you have a fairly short incubation period but in order to uh, contain the virus and and prevent more people from getting infected many companies would go to have a, you know a stay-at-home work type environment which would likely be short term and you got to take in terms of uh, you think in terms of long-term equity value is two weeks of slightly increased revenue going to you know have a material effect on the present value of those future cash flows right that's kind of something to consider not uh, just a short-term play where you're looking to flip it to the next guy tomorrow at a slightly higher price yeah, certainly. And it really doesn't reflect on the long-term value of these companies, as you'd mentioned. Um, one other bright bright spot is that um, mer- tracking merger arb yields, uh, they've increased from 5.6% uh, last Friday by our calculations to 7.1% this Friday. So, I mean, a good entry point for merger arb situations, which also looking at the merger arb index has had a lot less volatility than overall stock markets, which is a positive attribute of that strategy. Yeah, the other thing to mention in terms of, you know, Merjarb yields widening, you had junk bond spreads widening, those came under pressure. And I should mention that there's been a lot of critics of junk bond ETFs specifically saying that they wouldn't be able to handle a market crash. But I think this week really proved uh, that they definitely can handle it because you had record redemptions out of junk bond ETFs. And really, it's somewhat like the tail wagging the dog where you're not seeing the under liquidity within the underlying junk bonds but that liquidity 
is manifesting itself within the junk bond ETF, which I think is an incredible thing. So it appears that junk bond ETFs has actually increased liquidity just because the underlying bonds don't really need to trade, just the overarching ETF needs to trade. And so that's a, a really interesting dynamic. And it's also you know, proof that the criticism of some of these ETFs blowing apart, blowing up within a bear market, that really just uh, hasn't come to fruition. In addition, other spreads widening out, you had, um, you know, high yield uh, bank loan, high yield loan ETFs, those yields were widening. But uh, counter to that, you always obviously had um, treasury yields hitting bo uh, rock bottom. So r corporate bonds, government bonds really rallying here. You had a bit of a gold rally as well. However, it was volatile. But nonetheless, the question really is, what's an investor to do here? And I always want to tell investors that they should really should take a uh, long-term time frame when making any asset allocation decisions. It's never a good idea to make a wild financial decision that could throw you off your financial goals when you come across an, an, an anecdote or a negative headline. Certainly the media tends to amplify these negative news and the negative swings, but um, many people, you know, if you don't have the thick skin, they tend to be reactive and uh, diverge from their long-term financial plan. I think it's interesting to compare this big swing to something like uh, private equity, where if you consider that the S&P is down 13 to 15%, well, a private equity fund, since they have significantly higher leverage and more so focus on smaller cap names, they would be down likely 30 to 40% just over the past week or two, but they don't have to mark their funds to market and they don't have to shove it. The media is not shoving it in investors' faces, you know, a hundred times a day. So people are somewhat oblivious to the price action and it keeps them invested. And number one, that is the most important thing to do in a stock market crash is don't sell everything because everyone who, do, who does that, you miss the subsequent rebound. You lose a lot of great investments with solid long-term prospects just due to, you know, a short-term emotional boat. Interesting analog here and perhaps one of the worst pandemics on record was the Spanish flu which happened in uh, late uh, 1910s. So in December 1917, the Dow Jones bottomed at 66. Yeah, that's right. These days we are having 1,000 point swings from a range of 26, 27,000. But back then the Dow was only at 66 points. That's where it bottomed in this pandemic, which was a magnitude or a number of orders of magnitude larger and more serious than this coronavirus pandemic. The Spanish flu actually in infected 500 million people around the world and with an estimated death toll of between 50 to 100 million people. So certainly one of the nastiest pandemics you could ever imagine. Certainly, you know, thousands of times worse than the coronavirus uh, is capable of producing. However, 
say you were around to invest in uh, in 1918, the, the year after the Dow bottomed. Up until then, over the past 101 years, you have a 28,000% return. Now, obviously, that is longer than any regular human being's investment time frame. But nonetheless, the main point here just being having that long-term frame of mind when making investment decisions, not thinking, oh, you know, I think the market could head lower on Monday or next week or even next month or next quarter, you should be thinking if you're, say, 40 years old, how will this affect my investments when I'm 65? How is it going to invest or affect my investments in 25, 35, 40 years, which is a truly long-term time frame? So that's really what investors should be considering here. What's an investor to do? We always like to promote the idea of risk management before it's too late, meaning a highly diversified portfolio. You got your stocks, you got your bonds, but you should also be considering uncorrelated assets, whether it be uh, gold, whether it be hedge funds, venture capital, um, digital assets. The really important thing is to have uncorrelated return streams within your portfolios. But nonetheless, in terms of coronavirus, I think that we will get through this and we will go on to uh, exceed all-time highs at some point in the near to medium term because you just got to remember that with respect to the coronavirus, the majority of people who are affected have no major problems or complications. As I indicated, it's largely the elderly who are already very weak and sick that are dying, which is obviously very unfortunate from the human perspective. But nonetheless, from a market's only perspective, stay investing. As stocks tank this week, the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note fell to its lowest on record, hitting 1.15% and investors sought refuge from this coronavirus panic. These declining yields indicate that the market participants that are buying these bonds expect economic growth to decline and ultimately the Federal Reserve to go ahead and cut interest rates. If we look at what the market is implying in terms of rate cuts, now the futures market is pricing in a 100% chance of a Fed rate cut in March. So next month, it looks like a rate cut is likely. Now, price action from uh, an equity perspective isn't officially part of the Fed's mandate, but they do point to tightening financial uh, conditions, which is just another way of saying, uh, look, stocks and uh, corporate bonds are getting smoked here. So we got to step in and support the market under the guise of the so-called Powell put. As it stands, the Fed's benchmark federal funds rate is currently set between 1.5% and 1.75%. Now the market is starting to price in four rate cuts in 2020. That's right. So one rate cut in March, an additional three rate cuts behind that, largely due to this drama surrounding the coronavirus. If these four rate cuts are affected, this will bring the Fed funds rate down to a range of 0.5 to 0.75%. So really interesting implications on the bond market. What are your thoughts? Do you think investors should be buying bonds here at 1.15% yield when the government has a mandate, the Fed has a mandate to depreciate dollars by 2% per year? Yeah, yeah, it's certainly an interesting predicament. And I mean, as well, Powell came out this Friday afternoon saying that with a statement uh, saying that the Fed will act as, as appropriate to support the 
economy. Um, really just noting the, the threat that coronavirus poses uh, with, with regards to economic activity. As well, he did mention that the Fed is really looking at the longer lasting economic effects of the virus, uh, such as a hit to consumer confidence and demand, um, and that they're not as worried about short-term impacts. But get, just given their their, I guess, moves to that it's all but assured that they're going to be making a cut in March, you know, that does seem to be somewhat short-term thinking. So there's what the Fed says and what they actually do. So it's important to kind of see through and look at their actual actions. And they are definitely looking at the stock market as well as the president of the, of the United States as well. Um, but if they are cutting, that should be good for bond prices in the short term. But as you had mentioned, the mandate is, if you're looking at the absolute return of bonds, the mandate of the Fed is to have inflation in the 2% range. And you know, when you look, you can, make arguments about the, the core components of CPI and whether true headline inflation is what inflation is for the rest of everyday people as yeah. other healthcare tuition, things like that are And the Fed does utilize PCE instead of CPI, I believe, which uh, PCE is quite a bit lower, so perhaps a bit of cheating there by the Fed, who knows? Absolutely. But yeah, but all, that, all that's meaning to say is that there is a high probability of, of interest rates coming coming down in the next couple of months um, so that yeah, we'll just really have even lower interest rates in North America and I'm sure Canada would be soon to follow. Yeah, it's a really good point because what the Fed does basically, uh, the Bank of Canada generally is forced to follow not necessarily step for step, but directionally very similar. So we can expect rate cuts from the Bank of Canada in 2020 as well, unless you have a astounding rebound in markets, which who knows could happen, but in terms of a spectrum of probabilities, um, looks like rates are going lower. Now I wanted to look at this entire coronavirus, uh, stock market tanking, uh, yields, plummeting down to all-time lows. I want to take the 30,000-foot view of this whole current drama that's going on in the markets because it's important to note that every year, you know, you have something that causes angst amongst investors and causing them to sell stocks, buy bonds, etc. And so you have these wild swings. And I just wanted to go over the past 10 years what we've seen in the markets that have caused uh, corrections, bear markets, or just uh, 5% drawdowns. Now in 2010, everyone or most investors was fright were frightened of a double dip recession. In 2011, there was the US debt downgrade, which I believe on an intraday basis, the S&P 500 did hit bear market status. So that's uh, north of a 20% decline. In 2012, there's the European debt crisis with, you know, Grexit was a big one where Greece was going to leave the euro and you had a whole bunch of drama there. You had European bond yields spiking to uh, very high levels. Then in 2013, it was the taper tantrum out of the Fed. 2014, another outbreak. This time it was Ebola. 2015, you had the oil price plunge caused by Saudi Arabia not cutting production. 2016, Chinese currency devaluation, which the market freaked out about. 
2017 when uh, Trump became president. I remember when he was elected, overnight futures tanked six to seven percent only to rebound the next day. 2018, that was a recent one. Uh, Q4, Fed over tightening. The S&P on an intraday basis peaked to trough, did decline north of 20 percent. So another bear market on that one. 2019, there's US-China trade war. And lastly, 2020, coronavirus. So what is important to focus on is that each year there's some sort of drama, some sort of uncertainty, something that is headline risk that causes investors to sell. Then six, 12 months later, investors have completely forgot about that and they're on to the next thing. So in terms of thinking on a spectrum of probabilities, which is all, you know, investing and uh, what you have in terms of expectations of future returns. That's how you should think about it on this spectrum of probabilities is, you know, how is this going to play out? I think it's highly likely if you look at what's happening to the coronavirus, given that it's not very lethal, it does uh, seem to transfer pretty well. However, um, containment in China looks to be being successful. If we look on that on a probability weighted basis, I think it's likely in six to 12 months, we're gonna be talking about something totally different, a new sort of drama that the market is infatuated with perhaps in six months. People have forgot about coronavirus. Next, it's Bernie Sanders who's gonna crash the stock market. It's like, you never know, or perhaps it's something that no one else has thought of yet. I mean, who thought of the coronavirus six months ago? Clearly wasn't on anyone's mind. It was the US-China trade war. And have you heard anything about the trade war lately? I know I certainly haven't. Well, and even with when you mentioned what, what the next risk will be, I mean, you look at, you know, you bring up Bernie Sanders. Well, I mean, four or five months ago, the, the major risk is, okay, what, what's the major risk of Elizabeth Warren, at, you know, with in terms of economic development after, yep. if she gets elected? She was leading in the polls and, and now she's pretty much out of it. Exactly. So there, there will never be a shortage of reasons to be fearful. Yeah, exactly. And and if you want to look at this from the bright side, you know, attractive businesses that are 15% cheaper than they were just, you know, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, but I should mention that uh, I indicated earlier this year that S&P 500 specifically was at an all-time high record valuation on a number of metrics, whether it be EV EBITDA, EV to sales, uh, market cap to GDP, etc. So you had very elevated valuations and the market has come down from that, making valuations more reasonable. And the number one predictor of future returns are starting valuations where you're able to buy. So if you do have a long-term view, i.e. five to 10 years, I guarantee you if you buy stocks today in 10 years you won't even remember this whole coronavirus thing. Accounting and tax filing software company Intuit announced the acquisition of fintech startup Credit Karma for $7.1 billion which is a pretty massive deal in the private fintech space certainly. Now Intuit will integrate Credit Karma and it's currently more than 100 million registered users into its suite of products. Some of these products include QuickBooks, TurboTax and Mint. Those are pretty popular amongst customers. Intuit is fairly acquisitive. They have made 31 acquisitions in their history. In terms of valuation on this deal, 7.1 billion, which certainly is a huge number. However, not that much bigger uh, from their last financing round in 2018. It was a $500 million financing 
sitting at 4 billion valuation, so almost a double since then. I wanted to chat quickly about the strategic rationale behind this deal. So Intuit is buying Credit Karma really to tap their customer base and offer just a range of services, um, integrating that into their product offering and tried to upsell those users into Intuit's more premium paid services. They can also grow uh, its wider business by tapping a set of new consumers. And these are mostly younger consumers, which is where Credit Karma, Credit Karma was tilted to. And clearly Intuit wasn't as successful in getting that uh, younger type customer. What are your thoughts on this? really slam dunk uh, fintech deal, certainly for the investors backing it. Yeah, certainly. And so I just wanted to first compare it to a deal that we talked about last week, uh, Morgan Stanley's acquisition of E-Trade. And really what it comes down to, as you had mentioned, is the acquisition of consumers and, and, and of, of their actual customers. And so what you see in this deal is that Intuit is paying about $67 per customer. Now you compare that to Morgan Stanley's acquisition of E-Trade where they paid about $2,500 per customer. So in that situation, E-Trade's customers, they're, they're able to sell them a lot more value add services uh, at the E-Trade level as opposed to Credit Karma's customers. And that comes down to Credit Karma's main business model is they give you your credit score for free and then they serve you ads uh, for credit cards and loans. And if you end up you know accepting one of the credit cards or getting a loan through one of those ads they get a referral commission so that's really what the, what their business model comes down to that's their main business but their other business is what i think made this an attractive acquisition for intuit where their other business is in the tax filing industry where they will file your taxes for free now TurboTax offers free tax filing services um, i myself have used their tax filing services but they they're always trying to upsell you throughout the process, whereas Credit Karma really doesn't care about upselling you. They just want your data to serve you ads for credit cards and loans. Yeah, I think I pay the uh, 30 or 40 bucks a year option, which works fairly well for me. I mean, they make it real and nice and simple to do your tax. Absolutely. And so that's that's one difference is that there is a quality difference uh, between Credit Karma and tur the TurboTax offering. Uh, but this was really shaking up the tax filing industry, offering it for free as all of their their competitors, so whether it be Intuit and some of the other competitors, were charging ultimately for their tax filing services. And if you look from an antitrust perspective, there has been rumblings that there could be con some concerns over industry overlap, as it's estimated that in 2019, TurboTax's uh, percentage of the online tax prep market was 67%, whereas Credit Karma's had only 2.5%, but was growing very rapidly. So that could pose an issue for antitrust concerns here. Um, and Certainly raises red flags, in my opinion, when uh, you have that concentrated market here. Especially because the explanation of that it, this would be good for consumers, explaining that to regulators can be very difficult when you're buying a free offering. Oh yeah, certainly. <laughs> uh, when it competes against your paid offering. Yes. And then, you know, commenting on recent FTC action, uh, one interesting analog here is when uh, Schick tried to buy 
uh, shaving startup Harry's and they went, the regulator blocked that one. Now this was analogous because uh, Harry's like um, Credit Karma had very low single digit market share. However, the acquirer uh, Schick had, you know, 40 to 50%. They were the incumbent. Yeah, exactly. And so the FTC came along and blocked that. You're right in thinking that could be a major risk on this transaction. And even just from a messaging perspective is looking back, as soon as this deal was announced, both CEOs from both Intuit and Credit Karma were immediately in the media with a very clear and a very concise story about how selling this story and how this wasn't a defensive acquisition. And it was a really an, an offensive move by Intuit that was going to be great for consumers and just how prepared they were in terms of messaging uh, that you know it didn't pose any antitrust risk makes me believe that they are quite worried about that now I don't know what you were up to last Saturday morning but I certainly woke up early to read uh, Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders which was released uh, last Saturday and had a lot of wisdom, which is why investors like to read it. He touched on a whole host of topics. Number one, he once again uh, went out and communicated to the market what he's looking for in terms of deals, acquisitions. He stated that they constantly seek to buy new businesses that meet three criteria. First, they must earn good returns on net tangible capital required in their operation. Second, they must be run by able and honest managers. Third, they must be available at a sensible price. So Warren Buffett, always sensitive to valuation, but he also wants quality and good management as well. Another thread that I thought was interesting that he discussed was in terms of, you know, things that they don't care about in terms of uh, management of their equity portfolio, which is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So they don't care about straight upgrades or downgrades, what analysts are thinking on the stock. They don't care about quarterly beats and misses in terms of quarterly corporate performance of their investments. They don't care about speculating what the Federal Reserve may or may not do, and that has no implications for their investment process. They don't care about potential political developments, and they don't try to speculate on that. And lastly, they safely ignore economists and market strategist forecasts, which I believe is, uh, you know, should be taken to heart by regular investors. I mean, he comes out with his annual letter each year with just great wisdom that investors can study and you can really, you know, unpack a lot and learn from that. The other thing that I that I really enjoyed reading about uh, this week and it sort of dovetails into our whole discussion on should you buy treasuries here with the 10-year yield at 1.15%. And when he commented on it, it was actually trading higher at 1.3%. But he indicated while he's not into forecasting, he does believe that stocks will outperform long-term bonds over the long term. And he also expressed um, the unattractiveness of buying treasuries at 1.3% when the government's actively trying to depreciate your currency 
at 2% per year, effectively guaranteeing you a negative real yield on those investments. The other thing is, I mean, he's nearly 90 years old, he's 89 years old, and he did talk somewhat about succession, which is uh, unfortunate, sad part about this whole thing. And other than that, he did touch on some corporate governance aspects as well. He did mention the skyrocketing compensation of directors, which have had uh, negative consequences in terms of turning them into yes men, perhaps not overseeing management, but more so just looking to agree with them and withhold that incredibly high salary, which I mean, for a, a handful of meetings per year, it can be as high as three to four hundred thousand dollars per year which is certainly a very well-paid cushy job wouldn't you think yeah and so the theme so far in 2020 in the investment world has very much been focused on esg uh being environmental social and governance and he really kind of addressed those three issues but did it in a way that you know, I, I found, I, I very much preferred. It wasn't very in your face. Um, it was for a couple of examples. Uh, so talking about Berkshire Hathaway Energy, BHE, uh, he talked about how they achieved self-sufficiency in Iowa, um, which was quite, which is quite interesting. So wind self-efficiency really just, while also acknowledging that there is baseload power needed for when those turbines are not turning. Um, but as well, he mentioned with specific to BHE, how, you know, in contrast to how other public utility companies are operated, how BHE has never paid Berkshire a dividend um, and has retained $28 billion of earnings, which have then been reinvested back into the business. And when you contrast that to the public co's in the utility space, really they're just income plays where their payout ratio will be, you know, exceeding 80% of retained earnings. So there really isn't that reinvestment back into it, which from his perspective at Berkshire, he's looking for places to put his money. So he doesn't want a dividend coming back to the hold co. Uh, as well for corporate governments, you touched on that a little bit in terms of skyrocketing compensation for independent, in, uh, in quotations, directors. And he really has a negative view of independent directors whose fortunes aren't linked at all to the performance of the company that they sit on the board of and have never, and this is his big point, and that have never invested their own dollars in the stock. Now they receive uh, options packages, but they're not actually investing themselves into the company. Right. Right, because the directors ultimately represent the shareholders, not management. Their role is to, you know, supervise and, you know, hire and fire management where necessary. And so his attitude is completely correct, such that perhaps the um, compensation is too high and, and really changing the main role or main incentives of what the the role of these directors are. Absolutely, it really just comes down to incentives, incentives. And in terms of ESG, the first two factors are predominantly what's focused on, uh, whereas governance is a little bit less focused on in terms of looking at the factor. But governance is something that is an issue and it, it's something that I would very much agree that in terms of a company having a good governance score, they typically you'd look at their independent directors. And this really 
goes in the face of that where no a, a, a director that actually has skin in the game will probably be looking out for shareholders, which they themselves are. Uh, they'll be looking out for them in, in a better way. Uh, but as well, in classic Buffett fashion, he had you know a few jokes about his and uh, Munger's mortality. Uh, but what I found interesting was the explanation of uh, in terms of succession planning, but also how his shares will be um, liquidated to the market upon his death, where he estimates that it will take about 12 to 15 years for the entirety of his ownership to be sold out into the market, um, which is effectively them being given to his by his trust to the various uh, charitable organizations. And then they have a plan in terms of deploying that, which would involve selling the shares. But I did find it interesting because that is an overhang on the stock is mm. how these shares will be dealt with uh, after he passes away. So I did find that quite interesting. And they detailed Berkshire's share repurchases so they did view this stock as slightly undervalued last year perhaps it's even more uh, undervalued in this market environment where they can put more than a few billion dollars to work in repurchasing shares the other interesting thing i should note is that last year berkshire paid 1.5 percent of all american corporate income tax which is really just a pretty huge number and then sadly no sexual innuendo this year he typically has some good <laughs> jokes some good comments uh that are always uh always entertaining but unfortunately nothing this year however i encourage everyone to read the annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, many pearls of wisdom in there, and it's a quick and easy read. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 56 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review, leave us a comment on Twitter. You can reach me at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And Mike, they can reach you on Twitter at... You can find me at M underscore Kessler. Of course, you can check out additional episodes at absolutereturnpodcast.com. And we'll see what the market has in store next week. Perhaps we have a big, big bounce. Who knows? I mean, I think the market's down seven days in a row. And in these highly volatile times, historically, you have had these bear market rallies uh, intermittently uh, between these large declines, which we haven't seen yet. But, uh, you know, hopefully that comes to investors soon and financial conditions are uh, much better. But we shall see. Up until then, uh, we'll chat with you soon and wish you best of luck with your investing. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.